to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, uh, welcome to FEPS Talks, uh, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, uh, FEPS. My name is Laszlo Ander, I'm the Secretary General of uh, FEPS. And I have the pleasure today to welcome Dr. Daphne Halikiopoulou, Associate Professor from the University of Reading, who recently very kindly accepted our invitation to be a keynote speaker at the presentation of the Populism Tracker, which is a book series perhaps published in the last about half of a decade. And um, this series was launched in order to, to assess the development of uh, a most interesting political phenomenon, the spread of populism as a political uh, tendency, and to do it uh, through a quantitative analysis of political parties, which uh, for one or another reason are classified as uh, populist. Uh, so this is um, a great pride for uh, uh, FEPS to have completed this series. And perhaps the first question to Daphne would be, what do you think about this quantitative analysis of political parties? What does it reveal? Does it reveal um, a constant spread of um, a certain phenomenon? Or does it reveal um, uh, you know, ups and downs uh, fortunes and misfortunes of certain populist politicians, um, what can be, uh, let's say, at first glance, uh, the the reading of these trends? Yeah. So hello, and thanks so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here, and it was a real pleasure to be at your event. So I'm glad that you, you asked me back so we can discuss some of these concepts and issues in greater depth. So to answer your question, I think the short answer is that we see ups and downs. And so I was reading your, your populism tracker myself. I saw something that I find consistent with generally my analysis of, of what I call far right or populist far right parties, which is they tend to basically have fare better and then they, they lose some support and then they fare better again. Your populism tracker showed, for example, this year a decline in Austria and Bulgaria, in Denmark and in Greece, but also a rise in Belgium, Finland and France. If we go back in time, we can see similar patterns, right? So the, Front National, the now Rassemblement National, then Front National did well in 2002, then it declined a bit, then it did well again a few years ago. We can see the same in Greece, the Golden Dawn entered the Greek parliament uh, back in 2012, and then it did really well in 2015, and now it's it's out again, right? So I think that what is interesting for us to observe is not necessarily a consistent faring well, or not necessarily a consistent threat, but rather a variation, a, a variation in electoral support. And I think that is firstly to do with the fact that these parties get varied electoral support as it is, but also it has to do with the fact that we do tend to lump in our definition of what populism or mm. far-right populism is quite a lot of parties. So by mm. default, we would witness this variation. So in a way, the question really becomes, are we talking about the same phenomenon or are we really talking about something that's a bit different? And is it their populism that defines them or, or is it something else, right? So our umbrella is very broad. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think variation is is the key uh, to the, the the question you're you're asking. 
So would you suggest disaggregating this concept in order to have kind of more operational conclusions, for example, to look at, let's say, what might result in the rise of nationalism, which is in a way the fuel as a, as a major sentiment behind much, but not all, of the so-called populist political parties and tendencies? Yes, I think the key would be to identify patterns. I, I do think that populism as an umbrella is useful because it does give us some idea of of political parties that, that basically have a rhetoric that, that uses this the, the people or the popular will against the elite. So that does tell us something. I, I don't think that that is not useful at all. But it does it is in danger of, of becoming a buzzword that we tend to, to, to lump together everything we don't like or we think is a bit of a threat. Uh, so I think we need to nuance that further. Now, if under the populism umbrella, then we include all anti-establishment or all anti-elitism parties, then we still need to distinguish between the left and the right variety, because they're also very, very different. And if we focus on the right for a second, which is the sort of the party family that I examine, then I think far-right populism is, is another umbrella that can then include the more extreme and the more radical variants. So as, as long as we understand that these big terms are umbrella terms, I think we can use them, but it is useful to disaggregate and identify patterns within. Mm -hmm. I find the most useful is the far right, under which I use the extreme, i.e. these parties that are an obvious anti-democratic. They, they don't want to play within the democratic system. Um, and they often uh, espouse violence, they use violent tactics, and they have links to fascism. They use what I would call an ethnic form of nationalism. So yeah. they basically, <clears throat> excuse me, distinguish or exclude on the basis of ascriptive criteria, things that we are born with. So race, religion, language. Why don't you specify which are the most important representatives of this ethnic nation, ethnic nationalism? I would say the Golden Dawn in Greece is a is a very good example of a party of this type. Mm -hmm. So again, National Front in France. So the Rassemblement National now not so much. Uh, I would put this into the more into the the radical right category. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, at least after Marine Le Pen's leadership. Okay. And I, I would also use Jobbik or the way that Jobbik used to be um, yes. in the ethnic uh, category. Sure. So these are parties that use the racial framework. These are parties that, that still have ties with fascism. They are the blatantly, obviously extremist parties. Mm -hmm. They are a problem, for sure. But at the same time, nobody wants to collaborate with these parties. And ultimately, mm -hmm. look at what happened to the Golden Dawn. They're out. I think in a way, the more dangerous ones are the radical right variety or the ones that I suggest use a civic form of nationalism. So, so what these parties do is they try to sugarcoat the pill, if you like, or in other words, they, they try to exclude in a pseudo-liberal way. So instead of saying we exclude people because they are of a different race or because they are of a, of a different ethnic origin, they say instead we exclude people who are intolerant of our liberal democratic ideologies and culture. Mm. And that makes them more difficult to address. So look at what you mentioned, the Fort National or Rassemblement National. Look at what Marine Le Pen did. She she said, no, no, we, we, we are moving away from this older, more mm. racial agenda that the party had. We just don't want these immigrants who are a threat to our 
democracy, basically. We want to exclude outsiders because they are not democratic. And that's why these parties tend to have a very anti-Muslim narrative in particular, people who they portray as terrorists or, or you know, as culturally threatening. These parties also tend to embrace a, a type of welfare chauvinism as well. So they try to broaden their appeal and also appeal to working classes by sort of saying, we believe in the welfare state and the welfare state should apply only to the members of the nation, right? So they have a, a civic nationalist narrative that also touches upon some left or statist, welfare statist sort of uh, narratives. I think these parties are in a way more dangerous because they they manage to appear more legitimate mm. and, and therefore they have a much broader electoral appeal. But this is a very strong pattern in Northern Europe as well, this type of welfare chauvinism which you described. Yes, absolutely. I think it's very much, you can see it in Scandinavia, mm. very obviously, but uh, also in, in many Northern European countries or Northwestern mm. Europe, if you like. Whereas in Eastern Europe or South, I think we would have the more ethnic pattern. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting um, what you highlighted, that some of the more radical or extremist uh, uh, parties occasionally make the effort to pull towards the center and moderate. Uh, while the opposite also sometimes happens, that a centrist, center-right party, for example, Austria could be mentioned, in order to compete with uh, the extremists, pulls towards the more extreme pole and uh, becomes more nationalist, more racist, more aggressive against immigrants. And uh, let's be honest, Hungary could also be uh, mentioned in that category. Uh, so does it mean that in some countries, the borderline between center-right up and far-right becomes less clear, less obvious? Yes, Absolutely. And I think that this is the key challenge that these parties pose right now. So we, we spoke in the beginning about variation and I made the point that, you know, these parties are not new and they don't necessarily, their electoral breakthroughs are not really unprecedented, right? We've seen it before. But what is more new, I think, and therefore more worrying is that these parties now have been able to permeate mainstream ground. Mm -hmm. So in the past, when we used to have the more ethnic, the more extreme variants, in a way, as I said earlier, nobody would, would want to, to play with them, right? Mm -hmm. So they were, they, they were not included in the political systems that much of, or, mm -hmm. or in, in, you know, they didn't participate so much in policymaking because other parties would not collaborate. Golden Dawn, again, being a great example. So if you didn't make the threshold, you, whatever, you, you won a bit electorally, you were in parliament and then out. Now, with the increase of this civic rhetoric, these parties, unfortunately, um, have taken party competition in their territory, basically. The game is in their turf, if you like. So what has changed is that the mainstream right seems to think that in order to defeat the populist far right, we need to become the populist far right. And we can actually see this in practice in many cases. You mentioned Hungary. I think it's a really good example of how the more center and the more far right have, in a way, alternated. But we also saw it in the UK. Yes. So You can tell me if UKIP has declined, it's, it's not a threat. Yeah, but UKIP declined after it got the Tories to, to, to put on a Brexit referendum and then get the UK out of the European Union. So I think that uh, it actually has had an enormous mm -hmm. impact mm -hmm. on, on politics. And, and we see it elsewhere as well. We see that many of the parties, not even only the centre-right, but a broad range of parties, 
sort of now adopt the strict immigration narratives and policies of the far right, again, because they believe that in order to gain votes, we must compete. And in order to compete, we need to look like that. We need to imitate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's the greatest threat. Yeah, you should tell us more about the centrality of the migration question, because if we stick to the UK example, I think it's really obvious that they also spoke about sovereignty and uh, all, all, all this. But at the end of the day, the Brexit campaign was filled with the anti-migration, anti-migrant uh, sentiment and rhetoric. And, uh, you know, without that, probably the whole Brexit campaign would not have produced this outcome. But would the population, British or other, be so sensitive and sometimes negative to immigration without the economic anxiety, without the previous economic experience that, you know, the There's a job crisis, there is a social crisis, benefit cuts, and that makes probably a lot of people more and more nervous and anxious about the potential income of migration or further migration. Yes, absolutely. So to say first, I think immigration is indeed one of the most important key drivers of far-right party support. And there is an enormous literature in the field that supports this finding empirically. Right. So usually using data from many waves of European social survey data, for example, in many countries, most scholars find that immigration is an important driver. In other words, that those who have anxieties about immigration are the most likely supporters of far right parties. However, and here is where my work could add something or, or even disagree, if you like, is that I think the problem is that we tend to translate that as culture is the prime driver mm. because immigration tends to be translated immediately as a cultural variable or as as a, as, a, as an indication of culture right so if i have if i'm skeptical of immigrants by definition it must be some kind of cultural anxiety that i'm suffering but this is incomplete because as you said there are many reasons why people or, or voters or citizens have immigration related anxieties One of them is culture. So yes, there are certain people who fear indeed that immigrants erode the national values. But at the same time, there is a substantial amount of people who have uh, economic-related anxieties uh, with regards to immigration, right? So they fear that immigrants are a threat in the labor market, or they fear that somehow immigrants will take um, not only jobs, but also access to welfare, or, you know, when resources are scarce, if even if there is an economic crisis, that the resources will be limited, and then immigrants will take them. So we need to take into account these economic anxieties when we look at immigration. And I think a second thing, something that I find in my research, which is, is, um, is interesting, is, is the size of these population groups, right? So yes, it's true that those with immigration, uh, with, with cultural immigration-related anxieties are more likely supporters. Yet those with economic related anxieties are more numerous. So they are actually a larger group. So I think it's a, it's a mistake, if you, if you like, to say that, that something that is a, an important predictor tells us, yes, they are more likely, but it doesn't tell us how widespread they are among the electorate. There is the, the most widespread group is those who are worried about the economic impact of immigration. And, 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 a, and a last point on that, in a, in a recent article that I, I just um, published, actually, we also find that one third, or more or less, of far-right voters in Europe actually do not even have immigration-related fears. So while immigration is really important, there is an actual substantial segment 
of the far-right electorate that vote for the far-right for different reasons. These people tend to, for example, be critical of the establishment. They are very, they have negative evaluations of governance and government Mm -hmm. performance, uh, and they lack institutional trust. So I think there are issues beyond simply the cultural impact, you know, of immigration that drive voters to support far-right parties. Uh, Should we also add to this list the lack of visible political alternatives? Because sometimes the analysis of populism or extremism also highlights that in recent years or even decades, the so-called centrist parties became more and more centrist There's less and less difference occasionally in certain countries between center-left and center-right, and they borrow from each other various uh, uh, policies. So if someone really wants to see a serious political alternative, must look outside the mainstream, i.e. either far-left or far-right. So what kind of responsibility we can attribute to uh, the so-called mainstream parties, especially from our perspective, the interesting question is, the role and the responsibility of the progressive centre-left. What should be done better or what should be done differently in order to diffuse these dangerous tendencies? Absolutely. So, and this is the million-dollar question and the difficult question, right? Because I think, so you're absolutely right, this is the political opportunity structures argument or the party competition argument, right? So someone who disapproves of their government, feels the government has failed them, feels the state hasn't been able to deliver on its social contract obligations, won't vote for the incumbent. Mm -hmm. And then they need to vote for something else. They're angry possibly or they're disillusioned and they need to vote for something else. Why don't they vote for the left? Why don't they vote for the center left? Why don't they even vote... For, for, for the far left, in, in certain, I think the far right has been more successful electorally than the far left, except certain cases, uh, especially in Southern Europe. But in the Northwestern European pattern, we see that this hasn't happened. And the question is why, especially since we do accept that there are economic anxieties that drive voters. So these voters are not only disillusioned, but they have economic they feel either relative or absolute economic deprivation, and yet they don't vote for those parties that pledge to to, to solve their material concerns. They vote for parties that claim to get rid of immigrants or whatever, rant about their sovereignty and their culture. Why? So I think there's two answers here. The one is that I think the problem is that the left itself has been quite divided. So in a way, there is it, it's in search of its own identity. They don't know if they should go more radical or if they should go more mainstream. There are serious discussions. Should we also suggest we should limit immigration? Should we go a bit more populist and, and, and you know, broaden our appeal? While the left is having this discussion, the, the far right has found the golden recipe, which mm. is they in a way they've realized we're sitting as academics or or as progressives and we're we're, we're fighting whether it's culture or economy, but they have realized that it's everything. And the, the solution is that they need to capture a broad segment of the population, a coalition of different voter groups who vote for them for different reasons. It's not just the working class. The working class is not big enough to give a party a big win, right? It's not the, I don't know, middle class. It's it's everybody. It's little segments of everybody for different reasons. And they have done it by capitalizing on the immigration question. So they tell you, what's your concern? Welfare? 
we'll solve it. We'll get rid of immigrants. What's your concern? Oh, I don't know. You're schooling. No problem. We'll solve it. We'll get rid of immigrants. So I think if I knew the answer, obviously I would be making policy, but I think somehow the answer is that the left needs to find its own stamp, something that also attracts a broad range of those disillusioned voters who don't like the incumbent or those who feel that have failed them. Um, But I don't think that that stamp, stamp should be copying the right. I think that it should be its own. I think it's an excellent conclusion uh, for our conversation. I would like to thank you for the analysis and um, also uh, providing this uh, encouragement um, uh, towards um, a a more effective um, uh, center-left progressive analysis as well as politics. I think we can um, uh, advise our listeners to look at the populism tracker, but also your own uh, studies Uh, which you mentioned during the discussion about the Golden Dawn, nationalism, the role of migration, and perhaps even going back to 2011, when you edited a book about nationalism and globalization. And of course, uh, this is also a very, very important background for the entire uh, analysis of uh, the contemporary politics and uh, the party political landscape in Europe, which now, of course, has to pay a lot of attention to populism, nationalism, and various forms of uh, extremism. Uh, Professor Daphne Halikiopoulou, thank you very much uh, for being uh, with us and sharing your thoughts. And um, I can encourage listeners to uh, check out all other episodes of Feb's Talks. And we will also continue this series uh, during the summer period. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.